You're listening to The Process, where we talk to some of the industry's most talented artists, including film, TV and game. From concept artists to previs to 3D animators and visual effects artists, we talk about a personal project of theirs and take a look at the work that went into them, as well as show an insight into the mind and workflow of each artist. For any visuals discussed in this episode, we've provided a link to images and videos should you need a bit more context. Or you can watch a video podcast on YouTube. Hey, Sega. Hey, how are you, Jamie? I'm good, thanks, man. How are you? Good, good. Sorry about all the back and forth. It's been a whirlwind for me the past hey, six months, man. Don't you worry at all, and congratulations uh-huh. on being a father. Cheers, man. How is it going? Uh, difficult, I'm not going to lie, because in between uh, that, there's also a lot of stress happening at work at the moment. Oh, man, so deadlines. Pressure's on, pressure's on, plus newborn baby, plus uh, everything just going mad. Yeah, it's tough. My name's Saga Aliyubi. I'm a senior 3D artist currently at Epic. I studied architecture back in university, um, got my degree in 2006 and worked as an architect for a while um, before realizing that I was better at visualization uh, or was more interested in visualization. So um, I really heavily leaned into ArcVis at the first couple of architecture companies I worked for. Yeah, I just got really good at V-Ray and uh, decided that it wasn't just the building side of ArcVis that I was interested in, but it was environments as a whole. Um, so I worked at a bunch of studios in New York doing um, just CG commercials as an environment artist, junior environment artist at the start of my career. When virtual reality started to become a big thing with the release of the first Oculus, um, I started to get more involved in real-time, real-time rendering. And I worked at MPC for a while, doing a mixture of like uh, CG work for like traditional environment CG work, but then also a lot of uh, real-time work at MPC because they had like an unreal sort of experimental department there. So I did that for a couple of years and then I had a freelance job at Double Negative where I was just working on film. I'd never worked on film before. Um, so I took a stint at Double Negative to see what the how the sausage is made in the film industry, <laughs> yeah. um, working as an environment artist on like a, a major Hollywood film. So I was one of the environment artists on the second Wonder Woman film, Wonder Woman 1984. Um, so that was a really cool experience just to see um, what the process is like there. At the same time, uh, Epic Games was opening a London office. Alistair, who used to run a uh, New York office of the mill, had started a new, uh, London office for Epic Games. And uh, when I first joined in 2019, it was myself and another 3D artist in Alistair in a big empty, uh, <laughs> big empty office in, on Tottenham Court Road. Um, now the London team is about 30 people, I think, 20 or 30 people. So it's grown quite a lot in the last few years. When we was down in London last, we was fortunate enough to pop in and visit. Did you leave and yeah. you had a bicycle and, and we said goodbye? Is that No, Julian had a bicycle. Julian. I definitely oh. Yeah. I definitely said hi to you guys, I think. Yes. I remember I remember meeting you guys, but briefly. Yeah, and that's probably just after we um Jack got into the um Fall Guys outfit. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Have you have you been in that suit? I all? have not, no. no. I actually haven't been in the office much lately. Um yeah, they allow us to have the freedom to work from home, so I've been oh, taking nice. advantage of that quite a lot. What with all the tube strikes in London? And oh, everything. of course, and and the child, I guess. I guess it's a nice and the child. Yeah, yeah, a lot of reasons to work from home, and I also just feel cutting out the the two hours commute time. Yeah, adds a lot to my productivity. Like I'm much more productive at home. Some people find it hard to stay focused at home, but to be honest, I find it hard to stay focused in the office with really? all of the like little conversations that mm-hmm. you have and stuff. 
um, yeah, I'm much more productive at home for some reason. Yeah. And how do you find it now, just that work-life balance, physically, mentally, how do you uh, find about balancing it all? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. I, I see it sort of coming and going in waves. Um, I don't really feel like day to day there's necessarily a balance. Like I don't set aside a certain number of hours each day for like personal time versus work time. I see it more going in phases of like weeks or months. So there will be weeks or months where I'm just crunching. It's just like nonstop, 16 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours. But in the back of my mind, I know it's not forever. So early on in my career, you know, when I was being crunched um, against my will as a junior artist at studios, I was like, oh, this is awful. Is this what the VFX industry is like? I, I don't want to do this. But as I grew, I realized, um, hey, I got more senior. So I got a little bit more say in uh, when I crunched. Um, but B, I also learned that it wasn't forever. You know, there are phases of quite significant downtime where like, you know, I can even sneak in a bit of personal work during the day because there's not just that much work going on in the office. So understanding that I think helped uh, mentally sort of under, like being able to just be happy even in intense periods of crunch, which I'm actually going through right now. If you're crunching for like two weeks or a month uh, and yeah. then knowing after that there's a bit more of a downtime, what do you do? you know, to sort of unwind and, and sort of separate work yeah. to refresh your system? For me personally, this is something I learned over the last few years is um, physical health. Like I really uh, put a lot of energy into just, uh, I play football, go to the gym, but a, a lot of it's just playing sports and exercise because when I do that, I feel like I forget about everything else that's going on. You just focus on the singular activity. And I think the endorphin rush you get out of that just helps release a lot of the tension from the discussions at work and everything. Um, so for me, that's a massive, massive uh, release valve is uh, just playing football. And your body feels better physically. Like there were a few years uh, back when I was doing VR work where I was really, really focused on like moving ahead in my career and I didn't have anything outside of work. And I think that's when like sort of the mental pressures of work, there was no outlet, there was no release valve. And so that just piles on and piles on to the point where you start making, or I at least started making bad decisions uh, in terms of, how I conducted myself at work. Like I would get super stressed in meetings and things like that. But uh, I think having that outlet allows me to just kind of have a bit of perspective and understand that like, you know, whether this project goes the way I want it or not is not the be all end all of yeah. my life. And, you know. What would you say is the, the toughest project that you've ever worked on? Or is there anything that you can remember being like, that was, mm. that was seriously uh, a grind? Um, there's a lot, man. I think it was harder when I was younger because a lot of the projects I was on when I, when I was younger, as a junior artist, you really don't have a lot of say mm. in what you're working on and when you're crunching. And a lot of times you're, you're working hard to address, like, let's say notes from a client or a supervisor and you don't agree with the notes. And it's just like, this is an idiotic idea. Why am I changing the color of the fur for the thousandth time to make it look worse? Those type of moments, I think I found really frustrating. Um, so there was a lot of frustration in the beginning of the career where you just like, you know, got feedback you didn't agree with, but you had to address anyway and crunch on, and you just had no power. But the more autonomy you get, the more senior you get in your career, the more you actually have the ability to push back against things that you think are incorrect decisions for like a stylistic reasons or whatever. I think most of the crunching I do now is by choice, not enforced. And that's a very different feeling when you're, you're crunching on something because you want, you know that it'll achieve something that you want to attain in your career rather than um, just, you know, doing something against your will. Uh, and, and a lot of the time, 
when you say the client changes the color of something ten times, a lot of the time yeah. they go they get they stick with the original color in the first place. Or the exactly, first <laughs> That's... seen that a thousand times. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, typical, yeah. brilliant uh, saga. So I guess we can just move on to your personal projects that we're talking about today. So start with the the Joe Rogan. How did that come about? And just the the background, and, and just tell us a little bit about that project to start with. That was probably the weirdest, funniest personal <laughs> project I embarked on. I collaborated on this project with a really good friend of mine, Kubisi, who's a really amazing character artist. And um, this was kind of at the time when NFTs were just starting to right. pop off and you were, you were seeing people making just crazy amounts of money selling NFTs. And we we're like, right, what can we do that's fun and, and easy and, and is collaborative between the two of us um, and potentially put up as an NFT? So... Uh, he was like, he doesn't really have experience with real time, um, but he's an amazing character artist. So I was like, right, I'll help you with all of the real time component of this. You do the sculpts, the likeness sculpt of Joe, and I'll do all of the environment stuff, the lighting, the real time materials. And uh, yeah, we just did it on our nights and weekends. Um, it was a fun collaboration. Um, <laughs> we tried to get it in front of Joe. I don't know if he ever actually saw it or if he saw it and didn't yeah. like it, but he never got back to us. So we were like, we kind of lost a little bit of our uh, enthusiasm for the podcast yeah. after he didn't get back to us. But, uh, that was the next question, actually. Did yeah. Joe Rogan uh, respond and what was Joe's thoughts on it? He's He probably sees a million of these types of things yeah. a day, so, so it was hard to even just get through. Um, but we, you know, we tweeted to Jamie, you know, we tweeted to all of his folks and we're trying to get eyes on it. We're, we're not very good at self-promotion as typical artists, like we're quite shy about pushing our work out there maybe we needed a marketing guy to to advocate on our behalf but yeah i know it's that marketing it's knowing how to get it in front of the right people which is never yeah i think i mean there's there's two parts to being successful i think in our industry there's the part of just being really really good at what you do and then the other side is how you you know build your instagram following and then your art session all these sort of things which is quite a different skill Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of us find more respect for those that are silently sort of head down posting brilliant work without yeah. shouting yeah. about it. I think one of the best examples of that is um, the folks that did the indie game Stray that came out last brilliant. year. I don't know. Yeah. So so those guys, uh, Kula and Viv, they were legends in like the Unreal um, sort of uh, early days of like just posting videos of, of uh, their work in Unreal. Um, UE4, they were doing like amazing stuff with foliage materials and, and realistic uh, lighting and stuff back in 2013, 2014, when no one else was posting that type of work on YouTube. But the guy's profile picture is a cat. So I don't even know what he looks like. Like, okay. I've never heard him speak like they're just, you know, the wizard behind the curtain. You know, nothing about them. There's something quite alluring about yeah. that too. Yeah, I've not played Stry actually, but it's on the list to get uh, Saga. But, um, yeah, yeah. Heard very good things about that game. So what was the, you know, mm. did you storyboard it? What was the actual breakdown of creating this mm. this piece? You know, there's a, bit, there's a bit of mocap in there. There's really, you know, stunning lighting, great character model. Uh, there's actually, there's no, there's no mocap in there. Oh, is there um, not? The face, no, the facial animation is actually just blend shapes. Oh, sorry, I mean, oh, the, I mean the little, like, the little character guys around the... The sides. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, the the little um, monkeys and, and little characters, those were all uh, Mixamo animations. I thought so, yeah. I've seen a yeah. couple of those. Yeah, so super basic. Uh, they're not meant to be the focus. They're just sort of background uh, bits, but uh, I think they do, the, they do the job. Definitely. 
Um, what, what was the idea? Did you just come up with some funny stuff? What was the reasoning for those little characters and the deers and the? We listen to the podcast all the time, and so we kind of wanted to make this like just an overall, an overall sort of tribute to everything uh, Joe does. So because he hunts, he hunts, doesn't he? So I guess that's why the yeah. deer he hunts and the yeah. monkey is at the start with the sound of the 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 ident at the start and things like that. Yeah, and the monkey. I mean, he's always talking about humans in terms of our our relationship with apes and how yes. we evolved from apes. He's always talking to evolutionary biologists. He's obviously got the MMA thing, so we have the fighters. Um, and then the the sort of uh, astronaut is a tribute to all the podcasts he does with uh, Duncan Trussell where they're wearing the NASA outfits. Yeah. So it's all just little like Easter egg bits to nice. different and, shows he's done over the years. And the, the third eye, the sort of the deeper meaning. The... Yeah, I mean, uh, looking inside your, your soul uh, with the third eye, the pineal gland. Um, yeah, it's it's all just the trippy, crazy stuff that Joe always talks about. What was their weapon of choice to, to create the model? ZBrush, ZBrush, everything. Yeah. We used some of the metahuman uh, shaders. So the skin shader was adapted from the base material of metahumans. Apart from that, it's all just uh, bespoke, like from scratch stuff. So I think it's just the skin shader that we reused. He's got to have seen it already. I'm sure at some point... Uh, this will get in front of him because you, you know you notice some things that go online and sit dormant for a long time yeah and then suddenly it can take somebody to find it and do a sort yeah. of video on it and then you know so yeah who knows it will come back i mean the thing the thing with these personal projects is uh you have all these hopes and dreams for them at the time like oh this is going to go viral this and that but at the end of the day when you look back on it all you remember is whether you enjoyed making it or not. And did, did you enjoy it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I learned a lot doing uh, doing the project and it was also really fun to collaborate with my friend. Like we hadn't properly worked together on a project. I think that's a big part of being a CG artist is being able to work with others uh, yeah. and enjoy it and work well. It's as much as part of the job as just, you know, being good at ZBrush or being good at modeling, whatever. It's, it's like, are you easy to work with? Do people like working with you? Yeah. I think that's a skill that you develop over time as well. Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I was always given a piece of advice way back in university from my university mm. lecturer. She says, "Just don't be a dick. Yeah. You know, don't be an idiot um, because yeah. it's it's a it's a massive industry, but such a small world. And if reputation, yeah. if you if you don't get on with other people, absolutely. And and it makes a huge difference, like in your day to day happiness. Like if you're mm. on a team and everybody, you know, you've got tight deadlines, you've got a lot of pressure, but everybody around you is able to just be happy and chill about everything that's going on, it makes a world of difference to your mm. stress levels. Because you just know you're in it together, everyone gets along, like that versus the opposite, where like people are at each other's throats because, hey, my UVs aren't here in time and you know, what's going on with this and people throwing each other under the bus. Like I've been in both of those situations mm. and it's night and day in terms of the experience you have. Yeah. Out of interest, how long mm. did you spend in total with your friend working on this? And what kind of experience did you have uh, collaborating with the Unreal Engine workflow? Was it sort of a, a GitHub or a Perforce? What kind of um, setup did you use to, to, to work together on that? Well, I did all of the Unreal Engine side stuff. So basically, he didn't have to open the engine, really. I mean, he could, okay. he could take, I, I could send him copies of the project and he could dive in to sort of uh, peek around the shader. But uh, for the most part, he would send me his ZBrush sculpts. Oh, sure. And, uh, and just textures as well, and I would just um, plug stuff in. A fairly, a fairly simple workflow then for, yeah. for two people. Um, yeah, that, that's um, <laughs> something that we, we're, we're starting to uh, dive into now, the, the whole Unreal Engine mm. uh, 
working on with teams, um, you know, multiple people on site and off site. Um, and we're just trying to find our workflow and pipeline at the moment because, yeah, what one thing I noticed at the Unreal Engine Lab when we came down, I think the the event, I forgot the name of the event now, um, Mm. but I noticed with the people that were up on there talking about their projects with their presentations, as soon as somebody put up uh, an image of their pipeline and workflow, everybody gets their phone out and takes a photo. Yeah. So I think everybody's trying to learn or, or understand the best uh, you yeah. know, workflow and, and and things like that. So we're we're trying to find yeah. something that works for us. Yeah. And, and everybody's is always like unique, and there's never one correct way to do it. But yeah. I guess it's finding that what works best for for you and your project. Yeah, I mean, typically Perforce is the way to go for collaboration in Unreal. Really, that sort of seems to be the industry standard. Yeah, and uh, I would say it's the best way. Really, yeah, we yeah. we've. We, I think we did some tests with Perforce just on something small. We we ended up going mm. with with GitHub, but it's definitely okay. something that we uh, were still open to, and yeah, especially when the projects get bigger. I think if you just have someone who's uh, who's at least somewhat experienced in Perforce, kind of yeah. teach the rest of the team, that's the way to, rather than all of you trying to learn together. Yeah, definitely. It's just having those, uh, and I think t- yeah. t- t- technical artist for Unreal Engine. I think they're. You know, difficult to get to find uh, availability mm. wise because everybody sort of wants them on their it's team, high, which is high demand. High demand, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. which is understandable. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, every day is a learning curve. And mm-hmm. yeah, we're getting through it. Uh, let mm-hmm. me just pass this. So, so yeah, um, moving on then, Saga, to the amazing Japanese sketches. <laughs> Can you just tell us a little bit about those projects and, and, and how they came about? I started working on these at a time when there were quite a few um, like non-UE5 projects going on at the office, and I was just getting the itch to um, push myself in terms of environment art in Unreal um, while having to do, like ironically, non-Unreal work at the office. Basically, I, I was being pulled into a lot of like Fortnite work at the office, which is not... Um, obviously the cutting edge of like uh, realistic environment graphics. So on my personal time, I was like, right, what, what am I interested in enough to actually spend time after hours working on to push myself? Um, and I was also really interested in like, um, this was kind of the early phases of when UE5 uh, first came out is when I started working on, on these. And um, I was interested in, you know, how much geometry we can start to push with um, Nanite in UE5, and what can we do with indirect lighting with Lumen? Like I hadn't really, prior to this, I hadn't really experimented with those technologies uh, on my personal work. Um, so those those kind of technical challenges were the genesis of what I wanted to explore in these projects. And then aesthetically, I was just, I've always wanted to just do really beautiful um, Japanese environments just because I love that stuff. Like I love of Japanese culture, Japanese architecture, um, you know, obviously Studio Ghibli, Miyazaki, especially the environments of Studio Ghibli movies. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of where that started. What was what kind of like workflow um, did you use to sort of create these environments? Yeah, so in these in these projects, um, a lot of it was off the shelf models. So like a lot of making use of the new Quixel assets, like the new Quixel trees, which had come out around this time. There were a couple of marketplace like sort of temples that I modified a little bit just from the Unreal marketplace, um, and then bespoke things for 
when I didn't have uh, models that fit the scenes I wanted. But really, it was mostly a task of scene assembly, lighting, and really just trying to push like how much geometry can I get into a real-time scene now. It was like about density more than anything. So these are just sort of like challenges and understanding something that you can you know implement into your professional side of things. A hundred percent, yeah. Like um, a lot of times, I find I found in my career that when um, I wasn't being challenged at work, like let's say you're kind of finding yourself spinning your wheels at work because you're not being asked to do anything outside of your comfort zone. That's when you get the itch to do personal stuff that pushes you. Um, and so that's what most of my personal projects are. Is like I feel a need to push myself in order to not sort of fall behind like what's going on in the industry. And so that's kind of what I was doing at that time. And honestly, I'm feeling that itch again now. Like I'm, really? I'm thinking about personal projects I want to do now where I'm like, okay, you know, I finished these up a couple of months ago and now I'm ready to like start a new one and, and push myself in another direction. Well, there, we could hopefully get you back on a, a, a another uh-huh. episode in the future, Saga, to talk about that. I'm sure it's going to be uh, a great one to chat about. So 3ds max that's obviously your um, architectural background uh, and skill set yeah. and v-ray obviously with 3ds max uh, and and yeah. it's something that you've used as part of these japanese sketches uh, challenges what was that workflow is that just for sort of um, models into um, is that your choice of 3d software yeah i mean i don't i don't use 3ds max for much apart from like uh preparing assets for right. real so like i would do a lot of the sculpting basically all the sculpting is airbrush and then i would prepare like the low poly assets and the uvs um, that are that are going to be brought into substance painter for texturing i would prepare those in 3ds max so 3ds max is kind of like a aggregator tool for all right. of my different models you know it could be blender it could be maya but it's just a way of collating the high poly stuff from zbrush and prepping all that stuff for Unreal. So I'm not actually generally modeling things in 3ds Max. It's more like scene assembly, prep, sure. asset prep. And, and your background with architectural visualization, ArcViz, how is the old way of sort of V-Ray rendering compared to uh, real-time stuff? Which do you prefer? I think now it doesn't make sense to use offline rendering like V-Ray, Optane, Arnold, things like that for um, anything that's not you know, super photorealistic uh, film work that requires heavy simulation that you absolutely can't do in real time. So, like, the only things I would do offline is, like, you know, places like Double Negative and and ILM and, and, and places like that are having to do massive, like, ocean simulations with, you know, ships coming out of the ocean and, like, sort of thousands of creatures moving through the scene. Some of that stuff you still can't do in Unreal. Mm. Um, especially FX type stuff like waterfalls, notoriously difficult in real time. Um, so that's the type of thing where I would still say it probably makes sense for films to continue the pipelines they already have. But for everything else, like you can't beat the benefits of real time of being able to see everything right then and there and the iteration times of designing your scene when everything looks exactly the way it's going to come out in the render. You just can't beat that. Like automotive rendering get pretty much photorealistic mm. automotive rendering on real now arcviz all of that like sort of a non-simulation vfx work it, i feel like just do everything real time now yeah definitely what about your um lighting setups they're stunning so any any tips and tricks for the saga um, the saga method of <laughs> unreal engine lights uh i think it's getting much easier like it's just with lumen now yeah. you've got gi for free you know like you're having to learn less and less under the hood, crazy, weird Unreal Engine tricks to get your scenes yes. to just look real. 
out of the box. I mean, you can just drop in a skylight and um, you're already getting nice GI, nice indirect lighting, indirect shadowing. So it, it's definitely getting easier. And especially the other thing that's really cool is the path tracer. Um, that's getting better and better. So if you don't need to, um, if you don't need to have your project be interactive and be a game, you know, path tracer is a route to getting, you know, basically octane level lighting and rendering out of the box in, in Unreal, just dropping a, a skylight in there and getting perfect path traced soft lighting. Um, it's, it's easier than ever. And what, what about your uh, first time experience in Unreal Engine? What was it like seeing things so, you know, responsive and, you know, what was it like ex just exploring that world and, and shaders and shadows and how was it? The first thing I did uh, was download all of the, like, template projects that Unreal was releasing. So back in the day, they had, um, I think it was called Infiltrator, was one of their UE4 demos. It was, I think, a GDC demo from, like, 2014 or something. And they, the awesome thing is they always release these projects as templates to the community. Um, so basically what I used to do back in the day, and this is also something I did in ArcViz days, was, like, download an amazing scene and reverse engineer it. You know, pick apart their lighting, pick apart their materials, and um, learn through deconstructing it i would still advise that to this day like if there's amazing free scenes out there you construct them on your own that's a that's a great way to do actually like kind of like work backwards to understand how they built their scenes yeah so the the, the fish in the water how did you go about creating that when we look over the bridge with the camera is that just a straight up out the box water system or is that to be honest it's been a while now i can't remember oh, exactly how i did it but putting you on the um, spot here so okay. it's all right it's all right um yeah no i was just playing around with um so i actually rendered the scene in path tracer mm. i was just playing around with path traced uh translucency materials and seeing if i could get you know nice looking nice looking water where you, i always wanted to get a real time or not real time but an unreal engine scene where you got nice reflections on a surface that you could also see through because notoriously that's one of the hardest things in real time is translucency. Mm -hmm. But with, with Path Tracer, you can you know, get, get quite nice results. And, and also the subsurface scattering on the skin of the fish was something I wanted to experiment nice. with and see if I could get that looking nice. Um, so yeah, it's just sort of a learning a learning experiment for me, that, that shot. And, and what type of system was you using to create this? What kind of GPUs? I have a 2080 Ti at yeah. home. So it wasn't top of the line or anything, but it was it was enough to handle uh, the needs of the scene. I actually just bought myself a new rig with a 4090. So I'm oh, excited yes. to see. Oh yes. I did see how good that is. Is this is this lining up with uh, something in mind for the next project or Yeah, I mean I just uh, Besides the 2080 GPU uh, in my personal machine, the other specs, I mean, it's an ancient computer. It's like an Alienware machine from 2013 really? with a 2080 GPU slapped in it. So I was definitely well overdue. Like that thing has lasted me 10 years of personal projects and pain. And Brilliant. It's time, it's time has come. And is, is that the system that you use to create all the projects that we've spoken about today? Yeah. Amazing. The CPU was struggling to keep up, but uh, those those NVIDIA graphics cards go a long way. Can't wait to see what you're going to create with uh, the next GPU beast. That's a brand new one. That's the 4090, the, the new line. Yeah, it's a brand new one, yeah. Are they as difficult to get as the when the 3090s? To be honest, I got it as part of like a whole package That's built right. off of the Alienware, like Dell Alienware website. Um, I'm not the type of person to like build my own machine from scratch as much as I admire people that do that. I don't really know what I'm doing, so I just thought, I, you know, I'll pay a little extra for how this machine yeah. built for me. And 
are pretty good. The Alienware is offline pretty good. I guess that's that's the difficult thing of of um, stock wise is is purchasing mm. single GPUs. I think it's a bit more easier when mm-hmm. they're you know part of uh, of a bigger deal. Yeah, uh, you I know, a package. So well. But yeah, we we I think we've got some twenty. 2070 supers and some 3060 ti's they're working uh, a treat but it's almost mm-hmm. like when the when the new ones come out you're kind of like Ooh, yeah it's, it's quite yeah. exciting isn't it to see what yeah. people come out with them out of interest the grass and the overgrown you know steps and stuff with the camera going up the steps to the to the shrine how's that all made in unreal engine is that um uh, an add-on or uh, no, it's just using the foliage painting tool. Oh, sweet. Yeah, foliage painting tool with Megascan assets and just cranking up the density of the foliage brush to see how much I can throw at it before my machine starts to squirm. When the room gets hotter, uh, <laughs> you know that it's pushing the GPUs. Yeah, the that's, that's, that's enough density on the foliage brush. <laughs> that's that, how you know. <laughs> that's when you find the, uh, the the limit. And when you start to smell a bit of burning, that's that's when you've gone too far. <laughs> I haven't got there yet. Yeah. No. Okay. That, you need to throw more at it, Soga. Yeah, I know. How much involvement was it with like camera? So, so the moment with the, the mm. cameras moving down the, the steps, was that mm. just done straight into Unreal Engine or is there any like VCAM handheld stuff? No, no VCAM. I've been wanting to mess around with VCAM stuff, but in these projects, I just um, yeah. manually animated a camera in sequencer and threw on a procedural camera shake yeah. on top. That works great. What about the Fox? Um, I think that was a marketplace asset. Um, so yeah, so like uh, a lot of the like just background non-focus elements are just marketplace because they're not like my point in doing these projects was not let me see if I can model a fox. It was like let me build a, a, a cool looking scene with um, with uh, whatever elements I have in my library, whether from marketplace or Quixel. And if I need to build custom stuff, I will. But I think actually that that kind of goes to some of my next projects is I want to focus a bit more on sculpting more bespoke stuff. Right. Um, r- rather than just using um, kits and kit patching stuff, I want to actually make a crazy hero sculpt that is the focus sure. of the of the environment, and then build everything around that. Great. Any advice for for anybody sort of stepping into Unreal Engine and you know learning it? Is there anything? I guess for from like uh, there's different elements like you know animation or yeah. cameras or world building or storytelling. You know what we've what we've looked at today is more like mm. world building and mm-hmm. things like that. Any advice on or any do's and don'ts of Unreal Engine? I think being able to try and be objective and step back and evaluate your work objectively and not be too emotionally attached to it. I think that's a big thing is being able to see your work in the context of all the other work that's out there and be like, right, you know, really take a unbiased eye and scrutinize like what is what is missing from the quality of my work that I'm seeing out there in the best work and trying to not be too emotional about it. And just sort of address your weaknesses. That's a great piece of advice. It's like a, yeah. Put you on the spot again, but thank you. <laughs> and what about sort of like references? I mean, obviously referencing the real world as much as possible is, is massive, um, especially if you're trying to do a realistic environment. But even if you're doing a fantasy environment, um, you want to reference how physics works in the real world, how light behaves in the real world. You know, let's say you're doing a fantasy environment that doesn't have anything you can use from the Quixel library. You can maybe think about, and this is probably something going into my next project, um, you know, speaking out loud for myself. It's like, let's say you're creating an alien world. Is there something similar to foliage in that world? You know, is there some kind of non-animal or non-fauna type growth that grows on top of inanimate objects, you know, and, and think about how that stuff behaves in the real world. And 
adapt it to whatever your fantasy world is. Because I find that if I try to just invent things from scratch without any kind of allusion to the real world, it's always weaker. It's always fails to pass the believability test. You know, when you're working on like personal projects and you're learning like new softwares and things like that, how do you find being your own critic? And, you know, do you ever show it to other people? And how do you sort of decide when when it's when it's kind of complete or which things to change? I guess the discipline of of how you want how you interact with your own piece compared to showing it someone else like a creative and saying oh i want i want to change that or that doesn't work yeah you know it depends like it depends uh how close you are with people like i you know i have really good friends who are really talented artists so sometimes i can go to them and be like hey you know i'm too close to this piece i can't objectively look at it anymore i I don't know what's good about it and what's bad about it um because i've been looking at it so much so so you know if you have friends in the industry who you trust and have a great eye they're the first port of call um, and besides that, you know, try to be your own worst critic. You know, try to get ahead of uh, what you think the criticism will be. And yeah, you have to be really, really kind of harsh on yourself. Yeah, like push yourself because it's easy to just say, "Oh, you know what? That looks good enough. Uh, I'll just put it down." In, 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 where instead you could go, "You know what? That thing needs tweaking. I'm really going to sort of improve that." Because it's easy to just go, oh, "I'll move on to the next one." It's that discipline of of pushing it's, yourself. It's almost. Almost everything, like, you know, that that stupid cliche of uh, art is never finished, only abandoned. Like, almost everything can be better. The pieces I put out there, everyone's, everything you see out there can probably be a little bit better in some way. So it's just a matter of you deciding, right, when is it, like, good enough? When is it past the good enough to to, to just say I'm done sort of phase? Um, and that's that's a tough tough line to to get to. Do you ever um, feel like you've looked at something for too long? I'm going to put it down. I'm going to come back to this in like a week's time with fresh eyes. And have you ever done that? Come back and gone. Actually, what was I thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's even the next day. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'll be working something late late into the night, and you're like, "Oh, this looks fucking sick. I love this so much." And you look <laughs> yeah. at it in the morning, you're like. <laughs> No, it doesn't. It looks terrible. It's crazy when that happens, isn't it? Because you really think, you know, what was I thinking? You just get too close to it, man. And it happens to all of us. It's just a natural thing. You you start to lose the forest for the trees. You get so caught up in like one little detail that you were just like finessing and you, you just got it the way you like. And then you step back the next day and you're like, oh, the proportions are all wrong. Yeah. Here I was fussing about this detail and just, just take a step back. It's just not working. You know, when you put it down for a while, come back to it, it's almost instant when you see it for the first time again. Yeah. It, it really yeah. stands out, doesn't it? it and you go, you. whoa. Yeah. And that's likely how other people see your stuff yeah. because they're seeing it for the first time. How do you feel, you know, it is in this world today of being vulnerable, of putting your work onto social media and, and getting criticized? It's quite a daunting thing to be that vulnerable at times. Yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, it, there's there's no doubt about it. And everybody goes on their own sort of journey to get there. But as a junior, it can be really daunting because there's so many things to learn in terms of being a good VFX artists, even in terms of just environments alone. You've got to get good at modeling, texturing, yeah. you know, set set dressing, um, composition, lighting. Like those are all different skills that take a long time to get good at. So I would say, you know, if you're starting out, start small, you know, start focus on one specific thing. Like I want to get really good at modeling, sculpting a high, high poly thing, or I want to get really good at set dressing. If you're trying to get really good at composition and set dressing, Maybe start messing around with kickbashing marketplace stuff instead of trying to model every little piece of your scene when your modeling isn't amazing. 
and you're trying to learn composition and set dressing, like do one thing at a time because otherwise it's it's overwhelming. There's too many things to try and get good at to do it all at once. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of people feel like I need to know everything when that's not it just case, takes a long you know? time. Yeah. yeah, there's just no, it just takes years. Like, it's just really hard stuff. I know it's getting easier with like all of this, like, automatic, you know, unwrapping and automatic retopology and AI tools and stuff. Like, things are getting easier and mega scans and all these libraries. It's getting easier, but it's still, there's still a lot of skills, especially like when you're trying to get to the top level and you see the, the sort of best work out there in AAA games. There's a reason that people, you know, spent years and years yeah. to get to work ours is just hard difficult work yeah and, and i think uh, that's great you say that because comparing yourself to people that are at the the top or wherever wherever the top yeah. is or whatever it is i think you feel that i need to be that good but maybe you haven't you, you forget that they've been doing this potentially for for, for 20 years, years 20 30, years 30 yeah. years and then i guess in, a, in this day and age with especially with young artists um they feel like it sh- things should happen quicker. I mean, not everybody, but you know, there's this thing where the, the social media moves quickly, and you feel that you need to be this. And and I think a lot of people put yeah. too much pressure on themselves um, at times, you know, um, and then it can really affect their confidence and put them off. And you know, yeah, not not always the case, but there's definitely uh, people out there. It's, that, it's a challenge. Yeah, it, it's it's natural, I think, to feel let's say disheartened if you're you're struggling to do something and you see other people have done it successfully. Like it's natural to feel like, why am I not getting this? And we, we all have that. Like we've all had that still have it to this day. Yeah. But I think what you learn over time as well is just the resilience to push further and further through challenges. Like let's say you're struggling to get good at sculpting. Um, the only answer is just keep sculpting, yeah. but keep doing it. And that's what everyone who's gotten good has done is just definitely over and over. It's, it's not a natural talent. I, in, in a way, I do believe there is such a thing as, innate capability and, and talent and some people do have like let's say a knack for things but everybody who's gotten really good has just put in the hours the ten thousand hours you know the, the all of those cliches but it is just time and effort and i think as long as you are better than yourself the day before or the week before it's it's i think as long as you're improving on yourself and not trying to be better than other people and be better than you was yesterday. I think that's the the best sort of progression, and and then really yeah. a measure on improvement. Is this piece of work better than my last piece of work? And you should, you know, focus on what you're doing opposed to sort of comparing. And it's always great to look up and be inspired by other artists, and and always do that, of course. But use that to sort of be a better artist for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly speaking about the tool sets and what artists have available today uh, you know mm. is, is incredible yeah. um, compared to what was available way back when I always think now I shouldn't complain that I've got it really difficult compared to what they went through but, yeah. way back then to get to what you know they created um, yeah but but also you got to remember the bar is so much higher now as absolutely well. yeah and, and then the people bar, see yeah. so much more stuff. That, yeah. that always raises that bond, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but that's that's human nature. We're always, always as a society, as a culture, like pushing, you know, to be to create newer and better and more amazing things. This is funny. When I first learned 3D, uh, it was back in 2002. I think I was in uni learning 3D, and I, the first thing I modeled was a pair of glasses. And I learned 3ds Max from a book, 
Like I had to go to a, a shop in New York called uh, Barnes and Noble, buy a 3D modeling for dummies book to learn how to like spline model in 3ds Max. Incredible. So we've come a long way. And now you would just YouTube it, I guess. Yeah, YouTube. I mean, it's it's amazing how much learning. There's almost too much now. I guess now it's more of a filtering problem. And and I think that's what people can can sort of get a bit overwhelmed with that, that there's too much to learn there's and there's too much, too much yeah. you know and and there's a lot to consume absolutely but at the same time you know I think people can use that as an inspiration because there's so much cool stuff to look at you know use that as inspiration to work on something for yourself and and take all those little bits put them together and create something uh, unique so yeah, very exciting, and and what what a time to be alive in the the world. <laughs> what of City a time Gym. to be alive, yeah, man! Can you just tell us a little bit about what you did on uh, the Matrix video game, just briefly, your involvement in that project? Sure. Yeah, I mean that was a really big team, and I was kind of brought on when they were already well on their way to like they'd already established all the workflows and pipelines, and they needed to like pull different people from Epic to just help finish finish it up. So my job was helping the guys who were um, making all of the city buildings uh, to help do all of the materials and the interiors for the buildings. Um, so we did a technique that's used in all modern games now, which is um, basically parallax mappings, so fake 3D interiors for the windows. There's a lot of uh, interiors in that city, so it was just a lot of like rinse and repeat. Um, and then getting the materials to, to look good and run within budget on all of the different um, specs we had. So. Yeah, it was a lot of technical work. Not not the most creative project I ever had, but it was cool to be exposed to what the team were doing. Sure. And it was the first big sort of Nanite Lumen uh, release for UE5 that went out on console. Yeah. So it was just a fun project to be part of. Your career since you started Tiger, what has been your favorite project that you've ever worked on that you can think of or a favorite time? One of the recent uh, really fun ones was a project I did alongside the Quixel team, um, and it was called 90 Days. So okay. basically, oh, yeah, we've got that the, seven artists selected for the Quixel yeah. 90 Days special showcase. Tell us about that. That's great. Yeah. So the Quixel team wanted to demonstrate uh, how, with the amazing library they've built up over the years, how artists can very quickly put scenes together. Um, and the challenge set by the art director was like, right, you get five days to address each of these prompts. Um, and they were really, really sort of broad uh, briefs that were given to us. Like one of them, the Desert Canyon one, was just like, I need a ship flying through a Desert Canyon. Um, go. Like whatever <laughs> nice. you want to do within that brief, you know, it's, it's up to you. So, um, and yeah, you had five days to like pull stuff from the Quixel library, whatever you could model in that time. Yeah, it was. I think the, my favorite thing about that project was a the the challenge of pushing myself to be able to to do stuff within that time frame, but also be the different artists that I got mm. to meet. You know, I met um, all the other guys working on this project, which is incredible artists, and I learned so much from them about you know their workflows and seeing their scenes come together. Nice. Sort of pushed me to like improve what I was doing because you know every day in the Slack channel you'd see like all these sick new renders, and it was like, nice. oh my god. I need to keep up with this. <laughs> that goes back onto what we were saying earlier, but it's you know using it as an inspiration, but also like a a, a positive push to uh, improve yourself. What's it like working under the the pressure of five days? Is that like you say this 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 go? It, it, it was fun, man, because it was a uh, it was a challenge. It was just like one of those times where I was just like uh, hunker down, 
and uh, push yourself. Yeah. Was was you limiting yourself to a normal work hour days, or was you crunching no. on those? No, it wasn't. No, it was crunch. It was, was it? like wake up, wake up, switch on the machine. Yeah. Pass out at two in the morning. Really? Rinse, repeat. Yeah, it was crunch. But you know that. Um, it's only going to be five days and then you can, Yeah, this is going back to what we start, said at the very start, which is a... And I think sometimes, I mean, you want to be in those pressure cooker moments where you're pushing yourself for your own sake, like you're pushing your own skill set. It's not like you're doing something that you're not interested in. Mm-hmm. You need those times when you're hyper-focused, you're super interested in what you're doing and you're pushing yourself to the limit just to see how far can I push myself? How yeah. far can I go? For my own sake, not for anyone else's sake. Yeah, those are really, really cool times in your life. I think definitely. What's your uh, routine on that project? So you was get up. Was it a coffee? <laughs> what What's the uh, oh, start man. to every day? And, and, and there was no, there was no rhyme or reason to anything. It was just like it was just a scramble to be was like, it? right, what's missing? Like, what do I need to model today? What do I need? Like, what's how do I get this done? It was just like go, go, go. There wasn't. Um, there wasn't any kind of structure or predictability. It was pure chaos. Was it? Pure chaos. It was just like whatever it takes to maximize what I can get done today. And was was there a, um, a dedicated hour for lunch or was it just eat at the desk? What nah, was no. Nah. There's no I don't even remember if I ate <laughs> all the time. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. But like you say earlier, it's, it's important to know that, um, I guess, mentally and, and talking back um, and wrapping up on that note, um, yeah. mentally, you you the way that you approached it was that after those five days, you you knew that I can have a break and a, and a wind down. Just yeah. go, okay, if I can get through these five days, after yeah. this, I'm going to go and refresh my brain yeah. and, and exercise. And Also, like I wouldn't have done it if I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It wasn't like five, it was... It was painful in the sense that it was difficult, but it was also like really fun. And then yeah, I guess you yeah. feel that excitement, don't you? When you, it's exciting, yeah. and it is eleven p.m. and you're like, oh, this is, I'm still enjoying. You, yeah, like when you see things coming together, um, it's just, it just feels really cool. You're like, oh man, I can't believe how far this has come in like a day. It's starting yeah. to look so good. Like you get a bit of self-propelled like inspiration and motivation. It's an awesome feeling. Anything that you want to say? What you're working on next? You know, what's it like being a father and a CG artist and uh, all that stuff? Uh, no, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, you don't really get many opportunities to kind of reflect and and have these sort of deeper, in-depth, like psychological conversations about what it's like to work in our industry. So it's just really fun. Um, so thanks for that. Um, the challenge of being a father, you know, it's early days still for me. So I don't know. Yeah, it's um, it's just it's just life, isn't it? You just yeah. you just try to do what you can to, to get by. Going into the industry and knowing about the industry, uh, final question, sorry, is would you recommend your son, you know, thoughts on getting the son into the industry? Is it an industry that you feel is going to get better and improve or is it something that you're trying to go be, be cautious? This whole thing of um, the amazing sort of entertainment experiences that we're able to create now, they're just going to get bigger and better. Like just imagine in 20 years how good, how immersive and compelling this stuff is going to be. I hope. What I hope doesn't happen is that we end up with a whole bunch of things that are just a waste of time. Like, I think this industry can do so much more than just be entertainment. Like, to me, like, the art of games is just so inspiring. Um, And I find it just really, you know, you can, it's more than just pure entertainment. It's more than just, you know, a waste of time. And you, uh, a lot of games nowadays, you see, like, you kind of feel unfulfilled afterwards because you're just like, well, I just faffed around 
for two hours and, and didn't get anything out of it. But I think, you know, really good games and really good films as well can teach you something and take you on a journey. So I, I, I really believe that our industry has value to, to the world. If it turns out that my son, you know, wants to create that kind of stuff, I'll definitely push him in that direction because I think the industry is only going to get bigger and better and it's mm -hmm. going to be a bigger part of people's lives. I think financially it's going to be a massive part of the future as well. Like, it's here to stay then. I just want to say thanks for spending the time with us uh, today. Absolutely. Thanks for having okay. me, man. Great to meet you. You too, Saga. Send them all love to uh, Miran and the, and the other guys as well. Will do, man. Will do. Cheers. See you, man. If you're looking for more conversations like this and can't wait for the next episode, head over to our YouTube channel or follow the link in the episode description. Thank you.